0: The following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. We're going to read Mark chapter 7, verses 24 to 30, and then we will go to the Lord in prayer. If you will, please look at verse 24. Mark writes, and from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter, and she went home and found the child lying in bed, and the demon gone. Will you bow your heads in prayer with me? Father, we just come and we give you our time together in the scriptures. Just so challenged by it again, even this morning, reading through it. Just thinking about your great grace and mercy that you have bestowed on us so undeservingly. I pray, Lord, that as we work through the text this morning, every one of us in this room will be struck, just amazed by your goodness to us. Lord, I pray that uh, as I preach, your spirit would be active in each and every heart in here, believers, unbelievers alike. You'll give me the words to say, Uh, Lord, we just want to, to leave our time together in your word this morning so thankful, so thankful for who you are and for what you've done for us. And so I pray that you will be magnified and glorified in all that is said and done this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So I set a goal for myself a few uh, weeks, months ago now that I'm happy to say I'm going to be able to to meet. I had set a goal of trying to make it all the way through Mark chapter 8 verse 21 before the end of the year. So I'm happy to report we'll be able to do that. Uh, That's not just a A random verse, by the way, that I picked for for no reason. It's the end of a subsection here within Mark's uh, gospel that we've been working through now for a very long time. And just by way of reminder, since I haven't been up here in the last two weeks, and I feel like it's been a while since I've shown you this, I want to just kind of remind you of where we're at in Mark's gospel and what's going on and what he's doing. I'll show you the outline that we're working through here in Mark so that you can kind of keep up with me As we work through it, uh, Mark began with a prologue there in chapter 1, verses 1 to 13, where he just introduced us to his book, his gospel, what he's writing about, who he's writing about, this Jesus Christ, the Son of God that that we've been reading about ever since. And having done that, he entered in on section 1, which went from chapter 1, verse 14, all the way to chapter 3, verse 35, where he was presenting Jesus as the Son of God first thing you need to know about Jesus is he's not just any other man. He's more than a man. He is the son of God come in human form. And so there's a series of stories and, and, and episodes recorded in that section that are all designed to push us to that end. But when you get to the end of section one, Mark ends it in a very specific way. He ends it with rejection. Jesus, this son of God, is rejected first by the religious leaders of his day who who claim that he could only do the things he did by the power of Satan, as if Jesus himself is Satan-possessed, and that's at why and how he can do the things he does. He's also rejected by his family. They think he's out of his mind. They think he's crazy. And so, so we have this section presenting Jesus as Son of God ending in rejection. Then we went into the second section, which is Mark chapter 4, verse 1 to chapter 6, verse 6, where Jesus is being presented as the king. Remember those scenes that we saw there in that section where he's presented as king over evil and king over chaos and king over death. There is no realm in which his kingship does not expand to. There is nothing that is more powerful than him, nothing over which he cannot exercise authority. And so we see these amazing scenes showing Jesus as king. And we get to the end of that section and what do you run into again? Rejection. This time he's rejected by the townspeople in Nazareth. They're offended by him. He's one of us. Who does this guy think he is? He's again uh, rejected by his family. Mark specifically tells us that they do not believe in him. And so we end section two and we begin section number three, which is Mark chapter six, verse seven to Mark chapter 15, verse 47. And in this section, we're being presented with Jesus the Christ. So Jesus is Son of God, Jesus is King, now Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, as the the promised Savior, the Deliverer from the Old Testament. And this section is so large, it's broken down a little further into these three subsections. One there, the section of wider ministry in chapter 6, verse 7 to 8, verse 21, that's where we're at right now, as Jesus begins to expand his ministry outside of that little confine really around the Sea of Galilee. He begins to travel here, travel there, we're going to see him going up into to the uh, area of Tyre and Sidon today. He's he's expanding this message of, of him as the Christ. We see him next on the road to Jerusalem in chapter 8, verse 22 to 1052 as he begins to take very deliberate steps to the cross. And then finally in chapter 11, verse 1 to 1547, five chapters given over to his final week, that passion week, as he dies for our sins. And guess what that section ends in as well? Rejection. This time, not just in a a way of being offended by him or accusing him of something. This time, they kill him. And then, of course, no stories would end there, but this one won't. This will go into the conclusion, chapter 16, where we see that his death is not the end of the story. That he will, in fact, rise from the dead, and we'll get to that here in good time. This is Mark's gospel in a nutshell. just wanted to remind you of it. And as you can see this morning, as I mentioned a moment ago, the passage we're looking at today is right in the middle here of this subsection one, this section on wider ministry. And it really truly is about to get wider because what we have left for us here in this first subsection are two short stories of Jesus interacting with Gentiles. We'll talk about what that means here in a moment. But two short stories of Jesus interacting with with some Gentiles followed by one longer story of Jesus feeding the 4,000. We already saw him feed the 5,000. He's going to feed some more people, feeding 4,000 this time, as well as the conversation and teaching the follows. And so, over the next three or four Sundays, what I want to do is just finish out this first subsection of the third section of Mark's gospel. You with me? You know what I'm talking about? Okay. Just want to make sure we were together. We want to finish that out and see what it means when we say that this Jesus is the Christ. What, what's our response to that? What should we do? What should we think, et cetera? And so, today we're going to look at the first of those two. Short stories: the story of the Syrophoenician woman's faith, and as you'll see in a few moments, this is one of the most um, unpredictably predictable stories. Unpredictable, yeah, that's right. Unpredictably predictable stories that you're going to find in Mark's gospel. You 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 know what happens because you've read it before. We read it just a moment ago. But I'm telling you, it is not exactly what you expect. And so let's just jump into it by noticing that, that Mark begins the story by telling us that Jesus took a trip. He takes a trip, Mark says, here to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And if you don't know where that is, I'd remind you back you know, to this map. We, we keep coming back to this from time to time as I try to help you properly visualize what Jesus is doing and where he's doing it at. He spent most of his time around Capernaum, but now he's taking off and he's heading northwest toward this area that the map labels as Syrophoenicia. These are where these towns of Tyre and Sidon are. And the reason this matters is that this is not Israel. This is Gentile territory. And if you don't know what a Gentile is, it's very simple. You're either a Jew or you're not. And if you're not a Jew, guess what you are? You're a Gentile, okay? So there you go. If you're anything other than Jewish, you're a Gentile. And the Jews didn't, didn't like to interact with the Gentiles. They, they didn't want to talk to them. They didn't want to uh, visit with them. They didn't want to touch them. They didn't want to go through their territories. And so that Jesus would purposefully leave the area of North Galilee and head up into this particular part of the, of the countryside is very unusual it's very unusual because not only is it Gentile territory, but specifically this particular area was, was like extra odious to the Jewish people of Jesus' day, if I could say it in such a way. They didn't like Gentiles in general, but they really didn't like these And the the particular reason for that is kind of complicated. It has some to do with history, some to do with things that occur back in the Old Testament. It also has to do some with economics and and the the political, social situation of the day. But just needless to say, this isn't your primary vacation spot. There was no, like, you know, Jerusalem travel agency offering all-expense-paid trips or, like, all-inclusive trips, excuse me, to, to Tyre and Sidon. It's just not a normal place to go. So why did Jesus go there? Well... The only clue that Mark gives us here in the text is that it may have been to get away from all the Jewish crowds and the, the Jewish attention that he's getting here in Galilee. You'll notice it says that he entered a house there in Tyre and Sidon, and he didn't want anyone to know. It's like he's trying to, to get in, shut the door, and try to, to be quiet to get away because there's a lot of activity going on back in Galilee. He doesn't want anyone to know. And then Mark makes this funny little comment that he couldn't be hidden. It's impossible. The news of Jesus' travel has already reached there. People have heard he is unsuccessful, perhaps, in his attempt to get away. He couldn't be hidden because someone comes to visit him. You see, there's this woman. She's got a problem. Her problem, as listed here in the text, is that she has a little daughter who has a demon. A demon-possessed child, probably very young. And this woman has obviously heard of Jesus. She obviously knows about his ability to, to conquer demons, things we've seen over and over again so far in Mark. And she wants to go see Jesus. But that in of itself is actually the bigger problem. You see, she's a woman. And in this culture, and in that day and age, women just didn't approach male Jewish teachers particularly not if you're a Gentile, and particularly not if you're from this Gentile area. Uh, that, that a Syrophoenician woman is coming to Jesus it is, is really scandalous. And if you were one of Mark's original readers who's hearing this, you're, you'd be like, whoa, whoa, whoa ooh, this isn't going to go well. This doesn't happen. You don't do this kind of thing in this day and age. But I, I want you just to notice how she approaches him. And, and we're going to kind of move through these first verses quickly so we can spend more time on the next few. Mark tells us that she does two things. One, she falls down at his feet. You see that? And number two, she begs him, begs him to heal her daughter. What, do you, what sense do you get about her heart and from, from just the way she's approaching him? You get the sense that she's desperate. That like she's got nowhere else to turn. I don't know what else she's tried. I don't know what else she's done. Mark doesn't tell us. Apparently it doesn't matter. This is how she comes. This is who is coming. And now notice Jesus' response. He rejects her. And let's let that one just um, land for a moment. Jesus rejects this woman. I'm not saying but. I'm not giving you an explanation. He rejects her. He says to her, let the children be fed first for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And if you're not clear on what that means, he's drawing a distinction between the children, the, the people of Israel, and in Matthew's accounting of this story, he specifically says, I was sent to the, to the house of Israel. He, he's drawing a distinction between the, the children, the, the people of Israel, the people who have a place in God's plan and in God's family, and the dogs, that is, everyone else. All the Gentiles, everyone outside of the Jewish nation, because the Jews of Jesus' day often referred to the Gentiles as dogs. The, the, the insult here isn't directed towards her gender. I want to be very specific with that. It is directed towards her nationality or lack thereof in this case. She, because she's not a Jew, she's, she's a dog. And, and what he's saying is that it's not right for him to give her a healing or a miracle since she's not one of the Jewish people. That He came to take care of them, to be a blessing to them, that he came to bring truth and deliverance and restoration to them, not her. He's saying that she has no standing, no basis, no foundation upon which she can come to him and ask for anything from him. And I want you to, to, to stop and think about that because at this point, we should all be just a little uncomfortable with this. Should we not? Like it doesn't, it doesn't fit our picture of who Jesus is to think of him saying this to, to, this way, you're probably like waiting for me to tell you that Jesus didn't really mean that. Or, or they maybe he said it with a wink and a smile. He's like, well, it's not right for me to give it to the dogs, but come over here and I'll take care of you. Like, there's no sense of that in the text. It, the shocking fact of the matter is that Jesus is saying and doing exactly what she and everyone else around him at that moment expected him to say and do if it had been any of the Pharisees in the room they would have said the same thing maybe worse the disciples probably would have would have said the same thing as well maybe none of them would have even gone there in the first place he's doing exactly what everyone would have expected him to do wait a minute he's doing what everyone would have expected him to do We've been in Mark now for what, like a decade? Um, How many times so far in Mark's gospel can you think of Jesus doing exactly what everyone expected him to do? (laughs) This is it right here, you're right. It's unusual, isn't it? It's weird that in this case, for the first time now, Jesus does what, what everyone is expecting him to do because normally he does the exact opposite of what everyone's expecting him to do. I mean, I just quickly jotted down a few of the points. I mean, think about, think about the time he's walking through Capernaum, and he sees the tax booth there on the street, and he sees a guy named Levi sitting in it, and the Jews hate, they hate tax collectors. They're worse than lepers. They're as bad as Gentiles. Normally, any good Jewish man would have ignored it, walked away, shunned it, called a curse down on it, something like that. Jesus walks over to the tax collector and says, follow me. I'm going to make you one of my disciples. Then he goes to his house and has lunch with him and all his tax collector friends, and all the Pharisees see this, and they're like, what? Are you doing? Do you know who this is? And Jesus is like, Yeah, I know who it is. <laughs> I came to, to be a doctor to the sick, not the well. He, he doesn't do anything that's expected in that story. Think, think about the, all the people he heals, like the leper. The leper in Mark chapter 1 who comes running up to Jesus, any other Jewish individual at all would have backed off, would have been like, Get away from me, you unclean, whatever, so and so. They would have used their Jewish curse words, and it would have been terrible. Jesus stands there, embraces the man, and infects the man with his cleanness, with his righteousness. And everyone's shocked that he does this. The woman with the issue of blood, same thing. She's an outcast of society. She should be shunned. Jesus embraces her, heals her, loves her. No one's expecting that. Uh, uh, think of, of all the times he offends the scribes and Pharisees everyone else in his society, everyone else in his culture bows down to these guys. They're the best guys in town. They're the most godly, the most righteous. They get the best of everything, the best seats, the best parking spots, the best whatever, you know, like they're everyone loves these guys. Jesus calls them hypocrites and liars and blind and dead and fools. Nobody else treats them like this just Jesus regularly for positive or negative, however you want to look at it. Jesus never does what's expected, and yet this time he does exactly what everyone around him expects him to do. He doesn't simply reject her, he rejects her in an insulting, demeaning way. That's weird. And if you want to be shocked by something right now, I would suggest to you that you should not be shocked by his response to her in and of itself, What you really should be shocked by is the fact that he's doing what everyone thought he should do in this particular situation. That is the specific point in the text that should be grabbing our attention right this moment. Now, okay, with that tension kind of built, hold that and look at her response. Her response is, yes, Lord. And just stop and let that sink in. Because if you had been her in, in, in her shoes that day in front of Jesus, and you're like there begging for the life of your child, and Jesus says, I'm not going to give you any help because you're a dog, what's your response? How dare you? Who do you think you are? Where do you get off, you know, you, you, you would probably respond in all kinds of different ways i mean it's her daughter at stake here and i don't know about you but i've watched some parents like really overreact to like their kids and things that had to do with their kids i've watched parents like go up to other parents "Well, your kid laughed at my kid it's like well yeah because your kid's stupid you know <laughs> that's what you wanted to say but you couldn't say that or you know parents wow you want to get a parent riled up you mess with something connected to their child If their child's well-being is at stake, this is is how you get out of the heart of a parent. Right, parents? Okay? You, You don't see any of this in her. Jesus gives her the response that everyone expected him to give, and yet this woman gives a response that I don't think anyone expected in this story. She just accepts it. Yes, Lord, this is true. Yet, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And I want you to think about that response along three lines because I think in this response you see three very specific things about her and her heart in this particular moment. Number one, she obviously, truly believes that Jesus can do this thing that no one else can do. Like she's committed to that idea because if she's not really committed to that idea, what does she do at this moment? She, she leaves, Right? She walks out. She turns her back on him, curses him out, whatever she wants to do, she's out of here. She, she, she obviously believes that he can do this. This is why she came. This is why she falls at his feet. This is why she begs. She, this is why she's still here at this moment. She, she believes that this man, Jesus of Galilee, can do the miraculous, something that no one else can do. Number two, she willingly, humbly accepts the fact that she has no standing before him. She... She just owns it. She doesn't come claiming any rights. Hey, but listen, listen. You should help me because I'm just a poor mom and it's a little child, you got, you, you love, Jesus loves the little children, right? We've been singing that our whole lives. Like, don't, don't you have to do something, Jesus? She doesn't claim any rights. She doesn't attempt any argument with him, really. She, she owns the fact that she has nothing and that she is completely undeserving of his help. No argument, just, yes, Lord. And yet, number three, she clings to the fact that Jesus is her only hope. No other hope. It's this or nothing. And so she doesn't walk away because she has no one else to walk to. She she has nowhere else to turn. There's there's no one else who can help her, and so she clings to Jesus alone. Do, Do you see what I'm seeing here? And now, now... Jesus comes back with a very unexpected response, okay? His first time out, he sounds like everybody else. Now, after she says this, he says back to her, for this statement, the one we just read, her response, for that statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. For this statement, he says, it's it's not the words, okay, don't focus in like on the sentence itself as if the, the, the words are like the magic formula that brought about healing, it's not, the, it's not the words that he cares about, it's the heart behind them. Because in her response, we saw a picture of the kind of faith that Jesus himself is looking for. She believed that he was who and what he said he was. She recognized that she had nothing to bring him, nothing to offer, no right upon which to ask. And yet, she clung to him, to him, as her only hope. No wonder, then, that Matthew, when he records the same story, records Jesus' as beginning that sentence by saying, Oh, woman, great is your faith. Like, he he sees amazing faith in her. And because of her faith, Jesus now does the unexpected. He heals her daughter instantly. Instantly, miraculously, from afar. He doesn't even say anything to the demon. It's just like the demon's gone, just so you know. When you get home, the demon's not going to be there because I just kicked him out from here. I had a remote. Gone. Right? He's out. And and the woman leaves, Mark says. I don't know how he found this out, but she leaves and she goes home and she finds the child lying in a bed and the demon's gone. Look, I I don't know exactly why Jesus chose to handle the situation in in this particular way. If I had to guess, and it's just a guess, and you will believe believe me, you would read a lot of guesses if you would put in time into this, but If I had to guess, I think he was trying to draw out her faith for us to see. Just a guess. Might be wrong. Because, you know, one of the benefits of being God is that you already know what's going to happen before it happens. So when he makes his trip up to Tyre and Sidon, he already knows she's coming. He already knows her problem. He already knows her heart. He already knows what his response is going to be. He already knows the demon's going to get cast out in the end. There's like nothing at any point here is like surprising Jesus where he's like, what should I do? You know, like there's no, no decision making for him. He knows it all from advance. And so for, why would he do this? I, I think he's doing it to, to draw her faith out for, for us to see. Because without that interchange, we wouldn't have seen it. We, we wouldn't have, have seen what has to be the greatest display of faith to date yet in Mark. By far, hands down. The greatest display of faith. And it, and it didn't come from a person whom you or I would have expected it, did it? Because you, you probably would have expected that the, the people who, who should have known Jesus the best would have accepted him. And yet, what do they keep doing? They keep rejecting him. The people of Israel, the ones that he was sent to, right? Right? The the children, not the dogs. He was sent to the children. They should have seen him and should have known the Old Testament and should have fallen down at their knees begging him for forgiveness. His family, the people he grew up with, his townspeople, all of these people should be the greatest believers there were. And all of them, to a person, reject him. And yet, and and, and, um, one thing other. They keep rejecting him despite all they had seen and heard firsthand, remember? They saw it with their eyes. They heard it with their own ears. And now we have a woman who has probably never seen or heard Jesus personally come to him in advance with faith, the greatest display of faith so far in the Gospel of Mark. It's probably the truest, clearest picture of saving faith in Mark's Gospel, start to finish, in my opinion. Because like her, we have no basis of standing on which to come before God, right? I mean, if, if, uh, if she's a dog to a Jewish man, and again, understanding the context a little now, we're worse than dogs before God, are we not? When you think about the holiness and righteousness and, and perfect sinlessness of God, what are we to him? If she's a dog, what are we? We're we're enemies, right? We're we're sinners. We're rebels. We we're enemies of God because of our sin. We're not just like things He despises. We are against Him because of our of our sin. And if you think Jesus' opinion of her is bad, you don't want to know what God's opinion of you is. Okay, apart from Christ, God's opinion of you is that you deserve hell forever. That's that's pretty bad. And we rightly, genuinely deserve that judgment. And some people hear those words that that, that we deserve for God to to be angry with us. And they they clench their fists and they harden their hearts and they're like, no, he's not going to treat me like that. He's, how dare God think, ah, and they, folks, they think they deserve God's kindness and love. I'm telling you this morning, no one does. Not you, not me. And part of saving faith, I believe, is coming to the understanding that the only thing we deserve from God is his wrath, anger, and judgment. That's part of saving faith, I think. To come to the understanding you don't deserve anything but his anger. And yet, despite that, The other part of saving faith is that when we put all of our hope into the undeserved kindness, grace, mercy, and love of our great God and Savior, Jesus, we find forgiveness despite our unworthiness, right? When we realize that we have nowhere else to turn, there is nothing else we can do, and that there is no other hope It is at that moment when our hearts cry out with hers, yes, Lord, it's all true. It is at that moment that we realize that our God is a gracious and forgiving God, that our our, our sin was so great that we couldn't overcome it, and yet God in his mercy towards us sent his son to die in our place. He paid the price we couldn't. He took the punishment that was supposed to be ours so that everyone who puts all their hope in him No hope in anything else. All their hope in him and him alone can be forgiven, can be saved. Do you you know why this story is so powerful? It's because it's my story. It's your story if you're a believer. Because you have no other hope. (laughs) You, like this woman, had to believe that Jesus was who and what he said he was. You had to come to a point where where you had nowhere else to turn, nothing else you could do, where you accept his judgment but fall on your knees at his mercy, placing all your hope in him. And that's a story that we should never, ever, ever get tired of hearing. Ever. Ever. Because this Jesus, the Christ that Mark is presenting here, this is why he came. To show mercy to those who don't deserve it. He didn't come to heal the well. And if you're here this morning and you think you're just fine, then this message is clearly not for you. But if you're here this morning and you recognize your sickness, your brokenness, your sin, then I am telling you that there is a great God. A great Savior a great Christ, who has paid your paid for your sin for you, and all you do now is you place your hope and trust in Him, and Him alone for forgiveness. You bow your heads with me just for a moment. If you're in here this morning and you are a believer in Jesus, this is a short, simple. Message, a powerful story, a powerful idea, but one I hope that just reminds you of what God has done for you. And as a believer, as one who has placed all your hope, I mean, you think about that phrase, placing all our hope, we're saying that if we're wrong about Jesus, then we have no hope. I'm okay with that. And this morning I pray that you would be reminded of the fact that there is no hope other name whereby you can be saved but his alone just like the old the old hymn that maybe got sung way too much when we were kids just as I am without one plea no other plea but that thy blood was shed for me that's it I just want you to take a moment now to thank Jesus that he is your only plea that his blood shed for you is your only hope to thank God for his mercy and grace that you, like this woman, had nothing to bring, you had nothing to offer, you were undeserving. Thank him for the kindness shown to you in Christ. And if there's anyone in here this morning who is not a believer in Jesus, and you're trying to, to cling to some other hope, you're trying to find identity or strength or whatever and other things Lord please I pray that you will open their eyes to see don't let them harden their hearts and clench their fists but to to recognize who they are and who you are to see this free offer of salvation of forgiveness in Christ alone I pray that that their their hearts would be able to accept that you would quicken their spirits to, to believe so that they can know the forgiveness, the joy, the love, the mercy, the, the strength, all those things that are ours in Christ. Help them to, to fall on their knees before you this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you that, that you have accepted those of us who have no standing, nothing in our hands we can bring. I thank you that, that you have forgiven completely worthless people who have failed you in so many ways. I'm reminded this week of my own story, my, my past. I, the moment when you opened my eyes to recognize that there was nothing I could do but trust in you. And I thank you for that. And for everyone in here this morning who has, who has had that same experience, who has come to that same place, thank you. Thank you, Father, for helping us to see. I pray for those in here who haven't seen it yet. I pray that their eyes would be open, that they would fall on their knees before you, clinging to you and you alone, to the mercy and the grace offered through the sacrifice of your Son. I pray that they will know the joy that comes through knowing Jesus and that their lives will be changed forever. So we thank you for your word. I ask your spirit now to apply it in ways I never could. In Jesus' name.